0: I'm looking for the day when we do the last COVID 19 podcast, or at least talk about it from a historical perspective. Aren't you? I think things are getting better. I mean, at least we've got the vaccines coming out, but there's no question we're still in it, and patients are obviously still being admitted and still having a lot of sequelae from this. On February the 2nd, 2021, SMFM put out new guidelines about when to admit pregnant patients with COVID and what to actually look for as objective measures of illness and recovery. So in this podcast, we're going to highlight the changes, the update from the February 2nd, 2021 guidelines from SMFM on the treatment of COVID-19 in pregnancy. Hi, this is Brittany, a fourth year medical student at Texas A&M University and soon to be OBGYN. This is Clinical Pearls. Remember, this podcast is dealing specifically with COVID-19 and pregnancy. So for non-pregnant individuals, that's a whole other set of guidelines. But specifically, this is dealing with the OB patient population. Of course, there are different categories of infection. The first is asymptomatic or presymptomatic disease. This also includes a presumptive infection, and that's defined as a positive SARS-CoV-2 test, but with no symptoms. Next comes mild disease. That's defined as flu-like symptoms like fever, cough, myalgias, or anosmia without dyspnea, shortness of breath, or abnormal chest imaging. Then comes moderate disease. That's defined by evidence of lower respiratory tract disease based on clinical assessment. Now that can include dyspnea, pneumonia on imaging, abnormal blood gases, or refractory fever defined as 39 degrees Celsius or greater that's not alleviated with Tylenol. This is also patients who maintain an O2 set greater than or equal to 95% on room air. Now, that's one of the first changes that you want to see. In the non-pregnant population, an O2 sat can be maintained on room air of 92% or greater. However, in the pregnant population, the distinction between moderate and severe disease is not 92, but it's raised up to 95% on room air. So that severe disease in the OB population is defined by a respiratory rate greater than 30 or hypoxia with oxygen saturation less than 95% at room air. In this severe category, these are the patients also that have greater than 50% lung involvement on imaging. After severe disease comes critical disease, and that's defined as multi-organ failure, dysfunction, shock, or respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation, or high-flow nasal cannula. Now, many patients that have COVID-19, including pregnant patients, have mild or no symptoms at all. Outpatient monitoring with a 14-day self-quarantine can be considered for pregnant patients with COVID-19 who have mild symptoms or are asymptomatic clinical judgment, test availability, community spread, and other local policies should be used to decide which patients are tested for SARS-CoV-2. Signs and symptoms of COVID-19 range from mild to severe and can include fever, myalgias, cough, and difficulty breathing, as well as GI symptoms and anosmia. So don't forget that issue that was first called out pretty early on in the pandemic is that loss of smell. Now, here are the recommendations for outpatient monitoring of COVID-19 in pregnancy. It is recommended that COVID-19 pregnant patients wear masks, of course, at all times, and remain isolated, whether outpatient or inpatient, until convalesced, unless not feasible due to clinical care needs. Pregnant outpatients with COVID-19 should be monitored closely by their OB care providers for worsening symptoms. Patients should perform daily self-assessments and should be given specific instructions about when to contact their healthcare providers outside of regularly scheduled visits. Now, if a pulse ox is available, it may help in outpatient management. Telehealth is also a reasonable option here as it limits exposure of their other patients and healthcare workers to the patient with the infection at the same time providing care for the infected individual. Now, reasons to call a healthcare provider or EMS for COVID-19 patients include the following. If they have worsening shortness of breath, tachypnea, unrelenting fever, remember we've already talked about that despite the use of acetaminophen, an inability to tolerate oral hydration, or, there it is again, the O2 set, less than 95% at rest or on exertion. Also, if they have persistent pleuritic chest pain, if they have cyanotic lips, face, or fingertips, or, of course, if there's any OB issue, like preterm contractions, vaginal bleeding, or decreased fetal movement, that should prompt inpatient or at least hospital triage evaluation. SMFM actually states that there's no guidance about the timing of frequency for follow-up outpatient care in pregnant COVID-19 patients. However, SMFM states that it's reasonable to have a follow-up visit at least once within two weeks of diagnosis of COVID-19. And these visits can be either through telemedicine or through specialized COVID-19 clinics if they're available. OB care providers should remain involved in outpatient care of course to monitor for OB complications and maternal and fetal well-being. Pregnant COVID-19 patients with some other comorbid conditions like uncontrolled hypertension, inadequately controlled gestational or pregestational diabetes, chronic renal failure, chronic cardiopulmonary disease, or immunosuppressive states require inpatient monitoring. Also, pregnant COVID-19 patients with fevers greater than 39 degrees Celsius, despite Tylenol, raises the concern for cytokine storm syndrome, and that requires inpatient observation because persistent high temperatures can lead to multi-organ failure due to that cytokine storm. This cytokine storm syndrome is defined as unremitting fever, cytopenia, and high ferritin levels. All right, let's change gears here and talk about the use of anticoagulation in these patients. Remember, of course, that critical illness, including severe COVID-19, increases the risk of thromboembolic events. Patients who are critically ill or mechanically ventilated, without a doubt, should receive prophylactic unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin if there's no contraindications to its use. But there are actually limited low-level data on the use of therapeutic anticoagulation for severe COVID-19. Most reserve therapeutic anticoagulation for the concomitant presence of a VTE or other thrombotic event. And nobody questions the use of prophylactic heparin or Lovenox in these cases. But remember that therapeutic anticoagulation is more controversial anticoagulation regimens do include both unfractionated heparin and low-molecular weight heparin. In general, dosing regimens can be delineated into three dosing strategies, prophylactic, intermediate dose, and full or therapeutic anticoagulation. Remember, most agree with prophylactic or intermediate dose, especially if the patient is also obese. For patients receiving prophylactic dosing, low molecular weight heparin may be preferred due to the once-daily dosing to limit exposure to healthcare professionals. Also, for patients on unfractionated heparin who develop new-onset thrombocytopenia, don't forget about that heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and that should remain high on the differential. Well, what about this issue of low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin at discharge? Well, this also is kind of controversial. Now, wait a minute. Remember, we're talking about severe illness here in pregnant patients or the OB patients who are mechanically ventilated. And in these cases, prophylactic anticoagulation is is a no-brainer. But there's very little data and very little agreement about what to do with pregnant COVID patients who have mild disease or moderate disease. Right now, most would say I probably wouldn't give you anticoagulation. But again, there's just no guidance for that. It's very clear in the severe or mechanically ventilated group but not so clear to use these medications if they're mild or moderate where the yield of those medications is probably less. Now, upon discharge, use of low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin remains controversial, especially in pregnancy. Some feel very strongly to continue because of the postpartum anticoagulation needs because the postpartum period is your highest time for VTE, whereas others say it's just not necessary if they've recovered. Now, as we wrap up this session, a quick word about a couple of treatment options, specifically remdesivir and dexamethasone. The adapted COVID-19 treatment trial investigated the use of the antiviral agent remdesivir among patients requiring oxygen therapy due to COVID-19 and demonstrated decreased duration of illness in the treated patients. Because of these results, the NIH recommends remdesivir for treatment of COVID-19 in hospitalized patients with O2-sats less than 94% on ambient air. Now remember that remdesivir can also be used in pregnancy at the same dose, so remdesivir is definitely allowed for treatment in patients requiring oxygen. And what about DEX? Well, a recent preprint report of the recovery trial demonstrated that DEX was associated with decreased risk of mortality among people requiring mechanical ventilation, but also demonstrated a small but statistically significant decrease in mortality among those requiring oxygen for COVID-19. So because of this, it is endorsed that dexamethasone at 6 milligrams PO or IV per day for up to 10 days be used in patients with COVID-19 who are mechanically ventilated or require supplemental oxygen. However, it is recommended against its use in patients with COVID-19 who do not require supplemental oxygen. So our, our local institution, it is our standard go-to for dexamethasone and remdesivir for pregnant COVID-19 patients. Now a quick word about these glucocorticoids or the use of DEX for respiratory assistance as compared to fetal lung maturity. If glucocorticoids are indicated for fetal lung maturity as well, then DEX 6 milligrams IM every 12 hours for 48 hours for the 4 dosages as a standard for fetal lung maturity should be given. This should then be followed up to a total of 10 days of 6 mg DEX, PO, or IV daily. In other words, do your fetal lung maturation DEX regimen first and then finish up the 6 mg per day of DEX for about 10 days. But if glucocorticoids are not indicated for fetal lung maturity, then 6 mg of DEX daily, either PO or IV, for the 10 days can be given just like it is in non-pregnant individuals. All right, podcast family, a quick word about monoclonal antibodies. Monoclonal antibodies have been listed as emergency use authorization cleared for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 in adult and pediatric patients who weigh at least 40 kilos and who are at high risk for progressing to severe COVID-19 and or hospitalization. Remember, that can include pregnancy. Now, the catch, though, is that right now, there's just no treatment guidance for the use of these medications in pregnancy. However, SMFM states that there's no absolute contraindication to their use in the appropriate pregnant patient. Now, remember, we're talking about the use here in mild to moderate COVID-19 symptoms. So again, if the patient is mild to moderate and desires monoclonal antibody, then it's fine. But right now, there's just not a lot of guidance or a lot of studies that we can look at. All right, podcast family, remember this session was just about guidance from SMFM on who to admit, who to put into the hospital with COVID-19 during pregnancy. We didn't cover timing of delivery or mode of delivery. But we're going to do that next as a follow up podcast to this one. As always, thanks for being part of our podcast family. And we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.